Hello and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Shiroki, and today we are going to continue our look at the awesome Holy Spirit of God, and we are going to have a special look at what Paul calls the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And then we are going to finish up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse, we'll finish up in verse 25. So, without any further ado, let's continue our look at who is the Holy Spirit. In our uh, last episode, we looked at the gifts of the Holy Spirit, some of the gifts as well as the diversity of gifts, and how they all work together to serve the same amazing divine purpose of Jesus Christ and God the Father's purposes. So without any further ado, let's take a look at the greatest gift. So, like I said, we are going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, So that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Quickly, I just want to just touch on that real fast. Um, So... It's kind of hard. I had a long, it took me a long time to comprehend how, you know, you could do these things, but not have love. But then when I started to look at legalism, for example, and then you start to look at these different groups of people that do these work-based types of theological pursuits, when you realize that those are the very people who are doing these things and may do these things, but their motivation behind it isn't love, isn't care for other people. It's their own gain, which is comes along with the whole works-based system. You see it in, I don't want to call out specific groups, but you see it in different theologies and different groups of people think that they have to do a certain amount of things or a certain work in order to get to heaven or things like that. But what you have to realize with that legalistic type of system is you're missing the whole point, which is what Paul's saying here. Those people, there's um, groups that do rituals, there's groups that do different things, but Ultimately, and they may look like Christians, they may call themselves Christians, but they certainly, if they're not doing it out of the root motivation of love, which if you look at our greatest example, Jesus, his motivation was always love, which he's a perfect reflection of the father who is motivated by his fatherly, amazing love for us. Um, 
and you look at the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is love, because once he comes within us and fills us, we are filled with his love. And then that love creates those good works and creates and manifests as we see this all starting to come together the way the God, the spirit of God works. And it's pretty incredible when you think about that. But, you know, you never want to get fall into a system of or a theology or with a group of people that are doing works, 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 but they're totally missing the whole point because there's no love involved with their very core being. Um, when I was with that, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was trapped in that legalistic teaching in church for a little while, in hindsight, I could really see that their motivations generally weren't love. It was all works-based. It was all trying to do things to please God, not realizing that God was already pleased with us. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> We're already accepted. Jesus died for us already. Salvation is a free gift. And, you know, it kind of makes me scared when you hear that verse of Jesus saying one day there's going to be people standing before him during the judgment. And they're going to say, but God, but but Jesus, we did all this in your name. And he's going to spit them out and rebuke them and say, depart from me. I never knew you because ultimately at the at the end of the day, the root, they weren't motivated and rooted in God and in his love and filled with the Holy Spirit. They were in a works-based legalistic system that was basically, they always had just their own self-interest was always what motivated them. Breaks my heart to think about that. It um, It's a very sobering reality to really look at that and really get on your knees and pray for people if you may, or groups in general that you know that, that do that, um, because ultimately we want all to come and see the goodness of God and you know, sometimes when you're too close to the fire, meaning those people that are, you know, and, and I was caught up in it when I was in a legalistic system for a couple of years. When you when you're so close to the Lord, so close to being there, but you don't you're missing the bigger picture because sometimes you have to take a step back to see the entire picture. But when you're so close to something, you kind of miss the point and you miss it. And if you stay there forever you're never going to get it and that's a sad reality to think about for some people because again being thinking that they were doing something quote unquote for god the whole time me meanwhile it was pretty much just fruitless useless things they were doing because none of it was motivated by like paul's saying here this greatest gift of love and he's going to get into and define what love is now but <laughs> Love's been redefined by our sick world these days and to mean many, many things. And frankly, love is basically, it's not love that people really want these days. It's all lust, which is what is manifested by that word love that, that is slapped across everything you see these days. But mostly it's a lust for their own gratification is what has been sickly substituted with this idea of love, which we're going to look at here as Paul defines. But once again, it's the enemy taking something beautiful God made and turning it into a sick, perverted manifestation. So 
enough of that little uh, tangent. Let's pick up here at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. That word there, puffed up, basically means keeps no accounts of evil. So, well, let's just keep going here. Um, excuse me, actually, what it means is arrogance. So it, it's, <clears throat> I was looking at the wrong note. So it's not arrogant. So again, that goes back with that idea of there's no, no one should be walking around, <clears throat> excuse me, with a attitude of pride or, um, you know, a cockiness, if you will, to them, if they're in the body, because, you know, there's an amazing way that we have to get knocked off those perches real quick. And I think right now, one of those celebrity pastors, quote unquote, is kind of reaping those, those um, seeds that he sowed, kind of walking around with all those quote unquote celebrities and trying to mix the world with the word of God. Never works, doesn't work. And now, unfortunately, he's reaping the benefits of what was sown in the dark are now being manifested and shown in the light. So let's continue here. Uh, let's just pick up again at verse uh, verse four. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up or arrogant, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Let's stop there quickly and just look at some of the notes here for that first section of 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at the notes from verses 1 through, we'll say 1 through 11. Actually, let's go to 13, and then we'll stop, and we'll look at the notes. So picking up at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So Paul right there, he is putting things in, in an order. And although he puts love last, he says love is the greatest of all of those. So let's look at the notes here for verses uh, 1 to 3 in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 out of my King James, New King James Version Spirit-Filled Life Bible. Without love, the most magnificent manifestation of gifts and the most her heroic self-sacrifice mean nothing. Right things must be done in the right way. Although some view the reference to tongues of angels as a poetic hyperbole, 
it likely denotes the language of these supernatural beings. Love suffers alone. Excuse me. <clears throat> Picking up for the notes from chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. Love suffers long, having patience with imperfect people. Love is kind, active in doing good. Love does not envy, since it is non-possessive and non-competitive. It actually wants other people to get ahead. Hence, it does not parade itself. Love has a self-effacing quality. It is not ostentatious. Love is not puffed up, treating others arrogantly. It does not behave rudely, but displays good manners and courtesy. Love does not seek its own, insisting on its own rights and demanding precedence. Rather, it is unselfish. Love is not provoked. It is not irritable or touchy, rough or hostile, but is graceful under pressure. Love thinks no evil. It does not keep an account of wrongs done to it. Instead, it erases resentments. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, finding satisfaction in the shortcomings of others and spreading an evil rapport. Rather, it rejects it, excuse me, it rejoices in truth, aggressively advertising the good. Love bears all things, defending and holding other people up. Love believes the best about others, credits them with good intentions, and is not suspicious. Love hopes all things, never giving up on people, but affirming their future. Love endures all things persevering and remaining loyal to the end. How amazing would it be if the world actually truly had the love that's defined here and exhibited it throughout the world? I mean, wow. I can think of people that quote unquote say they love you, they care about you, yet <laughs> They, they'll throw you under the bus, they'll backbite, they'll, they'll spread rumors about you, they'll cheat on you, they'll lie to you, they'll abandon and leave you, they'll, <laughs> it's funny, a lot of people these days, they're in relationships and they, they're, they're deceiving themselves into thinking they're either in love or that they are loved because what a lot of people use other people for and why they date and get into relationships, they, they're actually in it for themselves first. They're not, they're not truly, they don't truly love the person that they're with. And as you can see with this, this definition here, for the very first thing, love suffers long. I've had women tell me, you know, I'll love you through anything. But right when the times got rough, they were out. And um, that says a lot. People in the world, they don't love you. They love how you make them feel. And as, as soon as that feeling that you give them is gone, they leave. That's why there's so many broken relationships. That's why there's so many false <laughs> ideas of love that are around these days. Unfortunately, I've lived it. I've experienced it. I still fight against it. It's almost our natural flesh. So I don't blame those people. 
but it's our, our own natural flesh to do that. Again, we want what what looks good to our eyes, what makes us feel good, what gives us a good feeling. That's our fleshly sinful state. And that's what a lot of people are caught up in to this day, <laughs> you know, um, especially in our Western culture and society. And it's really spread throughout the world. I mean, I think a lot of just, you know, unfortunately, we've had an influence in the world that's irreversible at this point. And it's a globalized sort of um, redefinition of just it's a combination of lust and self-fulfilling gratitude and, and, and gratification that we call love these days. But very few people know what true love actually is. And when you try to really love somebody these days, if you're not on the same page, it usually scares them away. They don't know how to react to it because they're not used to having someone genuinely love them for who they are through thick and thin. And I love when I see those couples that have been married, you know, 50, 60 years, you know, and, you know, there's something to be said about that generation of people that could just, you know, they met in high school, man and woman, and they were together for their entire life through thick and thin, you know, they raised families, they um, had ups and downs like everybody else, but, you know, um, ultimately, they stuck it out, and that was true love. I think as we become more distracted and immersed in this garbage technology and everything else that surrounds us, we just be people become more callous to true love and human interaction, and they trade it in for just cheap, you know, cheap coins of the devil, frankly, is, is, is what people trade it in for. And it, it's sad. I've done it myself. And it's, it's so at the end of the day, it leaves us nothing but hurt, wounded people walking around, which is what you see all around us, which is what you see on apps, on whatever it may be, television, you know, um, social media, all those people, they're they're all fronts. I mean, at least quote unquote influencers are probably the biggest. I'll just say they're the they're the emptiest people that that probably walk the earth. If you don't know, I mean, a lot of that those people are sponsored. <laughs> they all live in like a house in L.A. Some of them, like, hey, look, it's all an illusion. It's all garbage that's being sold to you. And if you look at it, it all comes down to marketing. It's pretty pathetic when it comes down to everything is about advertising and getting you to buy something and getting trying to put take money out of your pocket and put it in someone else's. It's really sad. This worldly economy that we're in right now, this this usury that goes on with banking and people, it's just it's a horrible thing. And I look forward to the godly economy that is coming someday because you know, it's going to be a beautiful thing to actually live in a world that's just, righteous, true, and ruled by the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ, who, rightfully so, <laughs> he is righteousness. He is a living word. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And it's just going to be a beautiful thing to be able to rule and reign with Christ. How amazing is that? I mean, the Bible says we are going to judge angels someday. I mean, I can't even comprehend that. Um, but 
what it does is shows the special place humanity has in God's kingdom. You know, I see a lot of people these days, and I'm sorry for this tangent, but, you know, I just have to to speak on this. Um, You know, they say, oh, well, how can people think we're the only intelligent life in the universe? Well, you know, the universe is so big, blah, blah, blah. Well, scientifically, they just came out and said, it's probably true that we are the only intelligent life. I mean, think about it. Just um, by, by way of numbers alone, there would be some true manifestation and contact at this point, if that was the possibility. Sorry, ancient alien theorists. <laughs> Sorry, uh, George Caracos or whatever that dude's name is with the crazy hair. I love that guy. I used to watch that show all the time, but it's just it's comical to me at this point. But look, what it says is, yes, we are the only intelligent life in this universe because we are that special and unique The earth is that much of a special and unique place. Yes, the elitists are trying to get off this planet as quickly as possible because, frankly, they know what's coming. A lot of elitists are occultists. They also practice dark magic, witchcraft, and they have a tap into the dark spiritual realm, and they know that what's coming isn't good. And when you realize that There's just a unique human love that God has for humanity, and that's why this all ties into him sending Jesus, Jesus sacrificing and and being that obedient lamb. And although he's the Lion of Judah, he became the Lamb of God, and you know he became that sacrifice for us, and it all goes back to love. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here, this greatest gift. Again, you'd be a clanging symbol. You're making noise that means nothing if love isn't your true motivation behind everything, especially if you think you're walking around doing things for God. (laughs) If you're not doing them out of a pure love, and that only happens through repentance, being filled with the Holy Spirit, getting to know the Lord, having Him change you from within and then that outward manifestation are is the fruit of the spirit which are the good works that people do because they love their fellow person um god's working on me in all kinds of areas of my life you know i have difficult relationships with family members and things like that and i pray and say how can this happen god i mean but you know one one I'll get back into the text right after this, but one interesting thing that, uh, oh, one great movie actually that inspires me is the movie I Could Only Imagine. It's about the singer of Mercy Me who um, goes, leaves his little rinky dink, you know, farm, farm town. I don't know where he's from, Idaho or something like that, Midwest, you know, just, and then goes off, you know, becomes, you know, pretty successful in music. And then he is, returns home to take care of his sick father who has cancer and his father abused him growing up. And, um, he just was just a miserable dude. He was just, you know, a monster is how is what he called him literally. But by the end of the movie, God uses that guy in his father's life to be the example of Christ. And, you know, 
his dad ends up getting saved and then changing. And it's just an incredibly good story. If you want to see a great movie, a great, great Christian movie, I can only imagine. It's just absolutely, you know, it's, it's brilliant. It's, I mean, five stars, 10 out of 10, whatever you want to call it. And it's just a beautiful story about love between two family members who frankly, (laughs) The way Bart, the singer, puts everything and just lays it out, it's its an awesome story of love manifesting the Holy Spirit through someone who he literally says, I never thought that would happen. So it gives me hope for different areas of my life, and this should give everybody hope for different areas of our life because we all have those you know, areas where... And there's people that we love but just don't know how to approach the situation because it's very, from our standards and our eyes, unapproachable. But with God, all things are possible. And that's very true. And I thankfully can attest to that. So, all right, let's get back into this. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, When they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. If I pray in a tongue, My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, 
but the other is not edified. I thank God I speak with the tongues more than you all. Yet, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Very important point there Paul makes. So take note of that. Again, talking about the order of everything and, you know, the disorder of some of the um, things that are seen in different churches and groups of people. If it doesn't seem orderly, if it doesn't make sense, if it leaves you scratching your head, probably a good reason for it. So, again, weigh everything against the word of God, not what people tell you, not what family members are doing, not what anyone else does or says. Weigh it all against the word of God. That's the ultimate authority. That's who you trust. Again, Peter saying, you know, his own experiences with Christ do not supersede the word of God and what's written in it. That's powerful. That's amazing. And that says a lot about his acknowledgement of realizing that the human experience, although it can be very real and it can be very touchy, feely and, and absorbed in our physical bodies, still does not oversee, override, or supersede the spiritual word of God because the word is eternal and the word always will be, always was, and will continue to be. The word is synonymous with love, who God is love. So again, love will always prevail. <laughs> Although everything else passes away, love will still be there. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and all unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, <clears throat> he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So pretty awesome stuff there. We're going to stop there at verse 25. We're going to look at the notes now for um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 16 to 13. Prophecy is preferred above tongues in public where clear understanding by the hearers is the goal. Tongues exercised in a church meeting must therefore be interpreted. The person who speaks in tongues publicly seems to bear the responsibility of interpretation, but 12.10 allows for a diversity in these two gifts. If no interpreter is present, the tongue is to be restrained. Paul reveals the place of tongues in his own personal prayer life. Praying in tongues is praying from the spirit instead of the intellect, and the same is true of singing praises. For Paul, praying and singing, both in tongues and in everyday language, were normal and regular parts of prayer and praise. There is no suggestion of hysteria, emotionalism, 
or abnormality of any kind. Edification of others is always a guideline in the public use of tongues. At the same time, verse 17 makes it clear that no censure is needed. It is not clear whether or not corporate singing, praising, or praying in tongues would be permitted or denied by Paul. What is clear is that no individual or group of individuals should so sing or pray in violation of the leadership, the spirit of the group as a whole, or the intent of the meeting. Differences exist in the acceptance of singing in tongues in corporate gatherings of believers. Some adhere to a strict disallowance of group exercise of this gift in concert, while others feel that order is not violated if the exercise is explained and non-fanatical expression maintained. Very, very important note there, non-fanatical expression maintained. Again, these, you know, movements, these slain in the spirit, all that stuff, you know, all that Toronto blessing, Kandahari spirit stuff, it all appears to be of the flesh. The spirit doesn't overpower. The spirit indwells in us and teaches us and, you know, um, guides us. And I'll just leave it there. Uh, spirits that overpower you are typically demonic. So <clears throat> again, I'll just, excuse me, I'll just leave it there. So picking up at the notes for verse 18 in my spirit-filled life, New King James Version Bible, Paul did not depreciate tongues as a lesser gift, but thanked God for the self-edification afforded by the full measure of the gift in his own devotional life. In one respect, Paul uses Excuse me, Paul's use of Isaiah 28, 11, and 12 denotes how the harsh, unknown tongues of foreign invaders were assigned a divine judgment upon Israel in Isaiah's day, a warning that they scoffed at and completely rejected. He seems to be noting how tongues in the Corinthian church could have the same effect of hardening believers who were present, whose response to the sign of tongues might be, you are out of your mind, similar to the reaction at Pentecost. That's exactly what I thought of when they when Paul said that. Prophecy, however, is a sign to believers that God is in their midst and brings conviction upon unbelievers, leading them to repentance. In a second respect, Paul might have had double entendre in mind, for this Isaiah passage also describes a second aspect of possible value in tongues, that people would receive a rest and a refreshing. In private exercise, the edifying benefit of tongues would doubtless include that. Picking up here for the notes on, actually, let's stop there. I'm going to conclude there at 1 Corinthians 14, chapter, or excuse me, verse 25. So that was our look at both the greatest gift, that being the gift of love, which should be our motivation behind everything we do in life because we are full of the Holy Spirit and that is the character of the Holy Spirit. And um, then we finish up here looking at prophecy in tongues. Again, it should be orderly. It should be done. I love how Paul, you know, when he says he'd rather speak five words with my understanding, then I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So, 
you know, there's different ways to look at it. Different interpretations are presented there. I tried to present, I try to present a whole view of what's noted in the notes in my Bible, because I know there's different thoughts, different feelings on, you know, what's acceptable in church and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. One interesting thing that struck me as I read that was basically the way it says that it should be determined by the leadership of that particular church. So again, the church, the body of Christ, we all have different functions, different roles, and who's to say that the spirit and gift of tongues could operate in one body of believers differently than it operates in another. So, you know, um, that's for God to decide and for he will place the leaders in position at the right places and right times to um, lead that specific part and group of the body in how the spirit's supposed to function in those places. So um, that concludes our look for today at who is the Holy Spirit and um, his spiritual gifts. So God bless and have a great day. Let's pick up at the notes for... 